Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 206 today, I believe. Is it 205, 206? Let's see here. What do we have? Yeah, 206. I can't believe it. Uh, But we have Matthew Palomari back on the show, and uh, we're going to be discussing psychedelic experiences and his new book, Pika Floor, uh, which I highly recommend, and I have the link down below the video, so go check that out and pick it up. Uh, It's on Kindle, um, and it's, it's relatively... I think for the quality that, that Matthew puts out there, it's relatively inexpensive, and I highly recommend that you get it. So go check that out. Um, also, before we get started, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. We did one with Matthew uh, before, um, so go check that out. And we also have a ton of other stuff on that catalog that's not on our other uh, platform. So go check that out. And one more thing, head on over to indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created. It is live, uh, still working on getting it in the app store, but if you're interested, head on over there, set up a profile. And if you want to hypothesize, theorize, theorize, speculate, it's a perfect place to do it. Uh, but without further ado, welcome back on the show, Matt. Thank you so much for having me, Mike and Maurice. Yeah. I love what you guys do. Yeah, no, I love what you guys do, man. I'm I'm all about this fun well, stuff we, here. We appreciate it, and actually, we actually got quite a few people asking for you to come back on the show from your last uh, appearance. So that was uh, uh, awesome, and obviously, we like your work and everything. But yeah, you got a good response, uh, definitely from our fans. Thank you for that, and thank you uh, for your fans. As Sally Field said when she got the Oscar, "You really love me." <laughs> <laughs> um. So I think last time we discussed some of your other books, um, uh, you know, the play that you put on and what else did we discuss? We discussed uh, your relationships and your experiences with some of the uh, heavy hitters in the psychedelic community um, and some of your more um, transformational experiences, if you will. Uh, But let's start off. Let's talk about your new book, Pika Floor, and... uh, just give us a little bit of a background and what it's about and uh, all that kind of wonderful stuff. Sure, yeah, thank you. And thank you for the great intro, too. Um, so I wrote my memoir, Spirit Matters, uh, which ended the, the story of Spirit Matters, my life, so to speak. That part of my story ended in 2000. And it ended with one of the most profound, life-changing experiences of my life, which uh, came in my first ayahuasca dieta in the jungle in the Peruvian Amazon. So all of the insanity of my life, and I had a, I had a rough background. Uh, I never thought so while I was in it, because it's like, this is just how it is. But uh, the whole first part of my life and the formative things, um, sort of being led along by the plants. Um, I went through some transformations, and then it really came to a head in... Uh, October of 2000 in the jungle on an intense ayahuasca plant dieta. Now, since that was that ended in 2000, 
So 20 years have gone on since that book ended. And in that time, I've done a dozen intense 10-day ayahuasca dietas. I've spent probably two months or more with the Shipibo Indians in the Peruvian Amazon doing um, ayahuasca things with uh, them. And I also did a two-year shamanic study program. So we went into the Amazon doing ayahuasca with the Shipibos. We went down and did the whole Huichol peyote pilgrimage and ritual, uh, ritual, the all-night ceremony, and a uh, pilgrimage to Mount Quemado, their sacred mountain. I worked probably a couple of months throughout the Andes working with San Pedro cactus, which is Huachuma, which is another mescaline-containing cactus. And I also did a lot of uh, not at the brightest things in my life um, in order to figure out sort of who I am and where my darkness and where my shadow lies. So I went, I went from actually uh, having a very good job, corporate job, and owning two houses to living in my car. And I lived in my car for about four and a half months before I came out of that. And after everything I went through and the the myths that I was living through uh, and manifesting and uh, ending up in my car, to make a long story short, I came out of it absolutely free with no obligations. I have no debt. I have no obligations. Uh, Presently, I'm not in a relationship. And like I was joking about the other day, sometimes I get lonely. But in a lot of respects, I don't think I've ever been happier. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm certainly open to something, some, some cute babe comes along and all that, but I'm not really looking, I'm enjoying the freedom and I've been traveling up and down the West coast. Like right now I'm talking to you guys. I'm up on uh, Orcas Island off the coast of Seattle, almost to Canada. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Yeah. And I spent a month in Santa Barbara doing a revision of Picaflor on my book there and I'll be back to San Diego. So I've been bouncing back and forth up in the town of the coast, really enjoying my freedom and through the help of the plant medicines, I really have found an inner peace and uh, a freedom and mindfulness. You know, I can have a moment, I can get bugged about something and get upset, but it lasts about five or 10 minutes and I let it go and I move on and I'm, I have better clarity and more peace than ever before. And I really do owe it to all the plant medicines that I've worked with. Hmm. Uh, you know? I, yeah. I, one thing, actually, before we keep going, is there any way, do you have a window open? Can you maybe close that? I'm hearing some cars drive by. Yeah, let me move. All right. I, I am by a window. One it's all second. good. I just, I want the best yeah, sound no, no, quality. No. I can hear I the too. cars. You, man. Maybe it's because I have actually, headphones on, but. No, no, I was worried about that. And then every once in a while, a damn airplane goes by. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I live right by a uh, fire station, so sometimes the fire trucks definitely... Uh, Catch yeah, us mid interrupt. mid podcast, but <laughs> yeah, bear with me just one sec. No problem. Absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting what he said because a lot of the uh, the norms that that are implemented into Western civilization is that you need to have a partner and you need that to be truly happy. So it's kind of interesting that he's talking about you know being alone and finding that. Inner okay, peace. I am back. All right. Hopefully that background noise has been gone no no you're fine like i said i just uh no let's get perfection as best as we can right the little things right yeah my ocd's go going off there um but uh yeah so 
Um, so you're talking about being alone and being happy. Maurice was just saying the same thing, almost like our culture is um, focuses on the fact that you need somebody else to rely on sometimes, or you need a partner to be happy. But in reality, um, I think to be happy with somebody else, you have to be happy with yourself, right? Because some issues I've ever had in relationships have been personal issues that then bleed into the actual relationship with somebody else. I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things I learned, and I wrote about it a bit in the book, is that if you can't learn to love yourself, how the hell can you ever love anybody else? Right. And, um, you know, when I do the, the jungle dietas, they're 10 days, and you spend most of your time alone. You meet every other night, uh, so roughly every other night, so five ayahuasca sessions with the group. And then you're alone. And now that I've been going on for so long, they also bring me, I do two uh, ayahuasca sessions totally by myself. They bring me the medicine in my tombow there, in my open air hut. And then they say goodbye, and they just leave me alone. You know, if I start screaming and foaming at the mouth, they'll come find me. Uh, you know, they're, yeah. they're, but but in the all that time alone and dealing with my shadow and all the stuff that comes up, one of the things I realized is how abusive I was to myself. Uh, I was, you know, I'd do something and then I'd go, oh, you little bitch, you know, and, mm. and I mean, I was like, I was horrible. I was like the worst abuser in the world to myself. Right. And I, and I, you know, I caught it and the fact that I was by myself and I was like, you know, holy God, look at this. I'm, I'm so bad with myself. How can I be good with anybody else? And I started really paying attention to the way that I addressed myself. And, you know, we come from a culture of perfection and if you don't abuse yourself, you know, you won't be a good anything, you know, if you're going to be a martial artist, you got to go get your butt kicked 500 times before you're any good. And all that stuff about beating yourself and no pain, no gain is so deeply ingrained. So I discovered that that wasn't really happening, you know, and um, that time alone and the amplification that the plant medicines came, particularly ayahuasca, or, or made me aware of that and uh, made me, uh, you know, more centered, less reactive. Um and there is know, something too, though, like, so there is something to striving for better, for, to be better at whatever your techne or art or whatever your thing is. Right. So like, I think you can be critical of yourself, but I agree. I think that you can cross a line and like you said, kind of get to a place where it's almost negative. It's having like a negative effect, uh, effect on your ego as opposed to, you know, feeding your ego what it needs to be productive and also a good person and love yourself at the same time. Oh, yeah, it's very easy to cross that line because yeah, for any artist out there, they know the truth that you're never happy or you're never satisfied kind of thing. And I look at a lot of my pieces and I just I'm disgusted at the old work, but um, there has to be a, a point where you accept it and like it and you know, when you, especially for art, if you can get it out there and get it, get it into the hands of people that you trust and they're telling you that it's a good piece of work and you're still beating yourself up over it, that's where the problem lies. And I have a lot of, I have an issue with that too. So I like that you're saying, uh, you know, we're very hard on our, on ourselves. Yeah, I agree. I heard, I heard, I was listening to, uh, you know, I'm a musician also. I'm a vocalist and I'm a drummer and I've been playing the handpan. And, you know, you've played, so you know this. You could, you could be up there playing a gig, and you can totally mangle a song, 
And then all these people come up and go, oh, man, you guys are so great. You did such a great <laughs> so you're job. You're like, I messed up so many times. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, but the key to that is if you do mess up, don't make a big deal out of it and just keep moving on and, and kind of get over the bump. And most people, unless they're really hardcore listening musicians, they don't hear it. Right. And then, you know, they maybe think, wow, that was a great little spin you put on that riff. Oh, gee, thanks. You know, and <laughs> then in your head, <laughs> your head, like, boy, I blew that one. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that rings real true because I just played a show and then I was all nervous about it. And then at one point I just I go, look, if I if I play this guitar, so no one's ever even heard these songs before. If I make a mistake, the only person that's going to know that I did that is me. That's and right. then after that, I was like, oh, well, that just let me be completely free after that point. Yeah. So so it is that way. And I am. Uh, you know, anal retentive in terms of perfection, uh, particularly like with my writing. All music and everything, all of it. But, you know, I've been teaching writing workshops for over 30 years. And so everybody who comes to me, it's like being a psychologist. So I have to treat them with kindness. I have to do whatever I can to help them write better and be better and do something productive. And there's a joke among, you know, professional writers. There's no such thing as writing. It's all rewriting. Mm. So there does come a point, and then when you let it go, uh, they say that uh, Tolstoy, one of my favorite writers, the Russian writer, you know, War and Peace, he hated to look at his published work because he always wanted to start editing it mm. as soon as he saw it in print. And I realized, uh, you know, my first short story collection that Ray Bradbury blurbed uh, came out in 1994. And I look back on that stuff, and at first I was like, oh, God, I did that. And then I went, wait a minute. Hmm. That was 94. That was who I was and what I was writing about then. So uh, that's okay because that was that era, so to speak. So I like to think that what I'm putting out now in present day has all the refinement of all those years of experience, you know, improving my craft and getting it better without beating myself up and, right. you know, going overboard. Yeah, I mean, uh, what is that quote by Da Vinci? It's like, uh, art is never finished, it's only abandoned. Yeah, yeah. There's, so, I mean, that's true, right? I mean, I've written many songs. I've recorded CDs, and there's plenty of things I go back. I'm like, should I go back over this? And No, you just leave it, and you keep moving forward. Yeah, one of the best things is when you're, like, totally sick of looking at it. Like, just looking at it makes you want to vomit. Then you know you're getting pretty close. <laughs> well, that's the you other know? thing with art. You really have to believe in what you're doing. Like, Because I, I, I write a lot of comedy, so it's like, oh, this is hilarious. But by the hundredth time you've heard it and you're editing it and you've seen the joke a million times, it's not funny anymore. So you really have to trust if you write a song that that song is good because by the time you've heard it that many times, the magic just has lost it's it's a fact so you really have to kind of believe in yourself and believe in your true vision from the get-go that's why we i think we've gravitated towards like the grateful dead and fish and those kinds of jam bands because they play different set lists every night and they're always mixing it up they're always moving forward they're always uh writing new stuff you know they have a huge catalog everything's always new and fresh so i think that for you and i i know that that's really uh rang true with us and that's what we look for in music yeah, there's a lot to be said for jamming, obviously. And then, of course, when you're jamming, you'll have those brilliant moments that you can never recapture. Uh-huh. You know, uh, you know, there there was some moments. You know, I've been in rock bands. I was in a country rock band back in the day and all that. And, man, there was a period there where we had this uh, slide guitar, steel, steel, pedal steel player. Yeah. Man, we had some awesome magic, you know. Another time I had a whole bunch of Mexican guys show up. And I swear to God, we sounded just like Santana. And it was like one one day, one jam session. It was just amazing. We had, 
I was on my trap set and we had percussion and a chick vocalist and lead players. And these guys were all professionals. Yeah. They were playing all over town. They came to show up and what a wonderful, magical day it was. And of course, there it was in that moment of jamming and then poof, it was gone. Right. So, you know. Yeah, that'll happen too. I mean, that's uh, like lightning in a bottle sometimes, right? With the music and jamming and all that stuff. So, um, so let's get back to Pika Floor. So what was... Yes. So is Pika Floor like a culmination of all your knowledge and information that you've accumulated over, you said, writing over the last 30 years and experiences and that kind of stuff? It is. One of the things I did with my uh, anal retentive scientific mind is that when I started going into the jungle to do the dietas, I bought a, a cassette player with me. Yes, I'm that old. I didn't. I didn't bring a vinyl record player, but I bought a cassette player. Hey, I still remember cassette. I remember recording the radio when we were in grade school and middle school, and recording songs off the radio onto the cassette player. Yeah, I, I, you're older than you look, brother. <laughs> <laughs> but I, anyway, I, <laughs> I, I brought the cassette, and every time in the in the beginning when I first went, I was like, oh, oh, I just farted, and I'd want to record that, you know, and oh, right. oh, 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 a leaf moved, you know, or there's an ant like yeah. that. So I probably had a dozen tapes the first time I went, and then the next year was like eight and then six. And so what I would do is I would come out of ceremonies, you know, and they would start usually, you know, we'd start around eight or nine at night. We'd go all through the night, and I'd get back to my tombow about three to five in the morning, depending on how hard and how fast and, you know, I was flying and all that. Right. So, you know, I'd come back all stinky and sweaty. The first thing I would do is take off all my clothes and take a plant bath. And then I would just sit there and record my impressions on the cassette. And I ended up, you know, with a number of really good journeys on there. And I also got to work with some really old-time, I hate using the word shaman, so old-time vegetalistas, plant men. And they would take us What do they call themselves? Are they, uh, do they call themselves uh, ayahuascaros? Or what do they call themselves? Vegetalistas or plant men. Okay. Um, This is kind of old knowledge, but the word shaman is from Siberia, the Tungus region, and it's S-A, Sa, man, which t- turns into, translates into one who knows, basically. The guys in the jungle, they didn't, never heard of shamanism. They don't call themselves that. Of course, people call them that now. Right. But they'll say, I'm a plant man, or I'm a vegetalista. Or that's a really common one. Right. Uh, or or ayahuasquero, uh, which is still more of a Spanish thing. Yeah. Um, so... They refer to, I have this whole thing, sometimes I go overboard with it about uh, the word shaman because it's such a pop culture thing now. And I'm always telling people, if somebody comes up to you and says, hi, I'm a shaman, then my advice is to run the other way as fast (laughs) as you can. Yeah. You know, know, because it's just not not right. So, But then if I make too much of a stink about it, uh, it draws attention to it. So I always like to say what I said on another podcast, which is, Everybody's a shaman only. Most of us don't know it. Right. Um, but but anyway, I recorded all those experiences. And then I had to convert those files into MP3s. And then I had to transcribe them and edit them. And a big portion of the book has to do with that. But I also recorded some of the plants I worked with. Um, there was a, an amazing magical interaction between your dreams and your visions. And especially during the course of the dieta for 10 days when you're really getting out there. And um, I spent a lot of time recording my dreams, which are 
often nonsensical. But I have in the beginning part, I have a lot of the recorded dreams in there because I wanted to show the way the dreams and the visions were interacting with that particular plant or plants that I was working with at the time. So I also got into the whole brain structure, the physical structure. I got into some neurochemistry to explain what was going on, and I used myself as an example. And I went through and recorded those years where I had cassette recordings of it. And then, of course, as the years went on, there were less and less. And then when I was doing my two-year shamanic study program um, with all the different places, you know, up, uh, like I said, I did the Weech Hole uh, pilgrimage and ceremony and in the jungle that was with a group so i didn't have all the private time so i recorded a lot of that with pictures so i went through the experiences and saw the evolution of what i went through and and some of the really embarrassing things i did in my life Mm. um that put me in a tough spot and of course when i got into the worst spots i said to myself okay buddy everything you did every choice you made where everything you did got you to where you are so you got to own it. You're responsible. And you, you got to, you know, roll with it, which I did. And in the end, it, it brought me to a really wonderful place of uh, non-attachment. Uh, what the Buddhists call mindfulness. And it has to do with really paying attention to what's going on in your mind with, with all the subpersonalities and the egos and all the stuff that goes on nonstop. So it, it brought me to the point where my last time in the jungle someone stole my identity while I was down there. Mm. So here I was out of touch for two weeks, completely out of touch. And I came back and they had, uh, they had gotten into my uh, checking account. Then they were paying my American Express card off with minimum payments to run that up. And they were just having a field day. Wow. So normally that would make me insane. The old Absolutely. me. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, so here I am. I come back from the jungle, very one of my hardest journeys ever. And there's like eight calls from, you know, American Express fraud and my credit union fraud and this and that and the other thing. And everything was messed up. And I was absolutely, totally zen about the whole thing. Hmm. I was like, okay, call this guy, do that, <laughs> go through the motions, get a new account. La, yeah, it's la, just la, more la. of like a pain in the butt, right? Like you just got to. They'll give you your money back to bank when they figure out what's going on, but it's just like you have to make the calls and cancel the cards yeah. and get a new card, and it's just like a big pain in the butt, right? Right, and 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 the old me would have been just, you know, violently insane over the <laughs> injustice of it right, all. Right, right. How dare they? And yeah. you're making me do this. Yeah. And I was totally zen. I was like, okay, that's what it is. Boom. I dealt with it. I got it all square. And that that inner peace has stayed with me. I had another little, I won't go off too much of a tangent, but um, a couple of months ago, I was in a really good mood. I was finishing the book and I walked out the door and took a walk and I pulled out my phone. It slipped, hit the side pavement, smashed the screen. Hmm. I had a moment of, and then I was like, (laughs) okay, buddy, you got to fix the screen. So get over it. And it passed very quickly so i'm like yeah i'm good i got over that right so i i finished the walk and i went back to my car and i went to start my car and it went blah <laughs> and it turned out the uh, catalytic converter had blown out mm. so that was another three grand right within like five minutes of smashing my phone and i'm like all right this is interesting now that one that one and i didn't get tweaked 
You're being like, tested, right? Like they exactly the universe knew you were Zen and had been through this wonderful experience, and then you come back and see how far it can go. Yeah, let's push this guy a little. Let's see how how much he's you know learned. I, I that's exactly how I see it, and it's like, oh, you're Mr. Zen. Show me, buddy. Here you go. <laughs> right. And and now when things come along, um, I just see the universe is giving me little challenges. Are you really there? If you're there, show me. So, you know, I went through it when I was publishing Picoflor and Amazon really screwed up royally for a week. And it took, well, it was a week long and a dozen emails and they couldn't figure it out. And I, I figured it out myself. Was and it I, the Kindle? Because I have heard of a lot of people having issues with tr somehow transitioning the, um, the finished product into the Kindle. Yeah, it was actually the print book in this case. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, Kindle too. So what happened is, is they never posted the Amazon price that I chose. Oh, okay. They had a scalper type person as the only place you could buy it. And it was like ultimately $5 more than what I wanted to have for the, you know, for fair pricing. And I went back and forth and, oh, we're working on it. And we know about it. And this is our tech support and this and that. And I was all just, it was a week <laughs> long. And I had this whole publicity plan, you know, all laid out, all ready to go. So out of frustration, plus I have a technical background, I said, to hell with it. I'm just going to unpublish the book, and then I'm going to publish it again. And that fixed the problem. Mm. And I'm like, you guys, I just spent a week and a dozen emails with you guys. Back, I'm giving you screenshots. I'm putting, you know, giving the you the direction. The book's so good that you double published it. Yeah, yeah I like to think that, right? <laughs> So um, I, I resolved the problem, which made me feel very, very good. What's the um, symbol? So like for people that don't know, picaflor means uh, hummingbird in Spanish. So is there is there some symbolism there in like South America and Mexico having to do with the hummingbird? Because I know that there's, you know, the Nazca lines in Peru. Yeah. Uh, there yeah. is a hummingbird uh, Nazca line. Um, yep. Petroglyph. Yeah. I got, a, I got a jacket that has that all over it that I got in, in, in Peru. Oh, okay. So uh, picaflor in Spanish, uh, picar is to bite or sting, and flor is flower. So it's like sting flower. That's what they call it in Peruvian Spanish. In Mexico, it's colibri. In uh, Portuguese, it's a beja flor. Um, so in my experiences, in my first, and this is all in the book, by the way, but in my first experiences um, working with ayahuasca, I would begin to feel different animal energies. Like the very first time in one of my first sessions, the serpent snake energy came up and took me over and my whole body was just swaying just back and forth like a snake and I was feeling snaky and it was not of my own volition. So over time as I progressed and worked with different uh, vegetalistas and stuff, at one point and a critical point, a condor came to me. And I was sitting there cross-legged and my legs, my legs started flapping on their own it's an exquisite feeling. And I was, and I was, my visions, I was flying through the mountains and I was seeing things and I was seeing as a condor. Hmm. Now I wasn't, the, the old time shaman I was working with at the time, oh, I said that word. Uh, <laughs> he, he came to me the next day. He was very good to me. He was older. He, in fact, he was a mentor to the guys I was working with. And I was like, hey, you know, Guillermo, que es la abuela, you know? And he gave me this big smile and he says, El Condor. And as soon as he said it, I went, poof, and I got this big flash. And it's like, that's exactly what I had been was the Condor. Now, in uh, Inca mythology, there are 
There is the upper world, the middle world, and the lower world. The upper world is represented by the condor, and it's represented by the color pink, which is love. The middle world is the jaguar or the puma, which is an electric blue, which is power. Mm. And the lower world is gold, represented of wisdom by the serpent. And those are three primary um, spirits or energies, whatever you want to call them, that people will experience on ayahuasca, whether they're in New York City or in the jungle, right. either way. So the condor was my ally in more than different ways. And condors are known for eating carrion and disease. They're not predators. And turning it into something beautiful, which is them in flight. And I've actually been to Colca Canyon in, in Peru, down by Arequipa, where they fly up every day. And I got to experience them directly. So you really get to know that, that totem or that animal energy and all that. Now, some years later, Five or six years later, I was in a ceremony, wasn't in the jungle for this. It, the, the hummingbird had been coming to me a few times, but I didn't know it at the time. So I was in a ceremony, and all of a sudden, my legs started going a mile a minute, and my, and my body, my head was moving forward like really quick. If I hadn't had the experience I got, it would have totally freaked me out. Right. I mean, it's like, it's like a whole other energy. It's not me doing it. There's no volition on my part. But I went, and, and, all, and then all of a sudden, my vision shifted into beautiful, like, neon pastel, high-frequency colors, and everything was just exquisite. It was just, I can't ever put it into words how beautiful, not only the, the feeling, but the experience and all that was. And I was just going like a mile a minute. So I was like, wow, I really flew this time hard and fast. So... The next day, we were doing an integration, and one of my uh, one of my bros came in, and he said, "I knew this was going to be a really powerful cer ceremony because just before the session, a hummingbird came up and got right in my face." Right when he said that, not only did I realize that I was the hummingbird, but in that exact same moment, my girlfriend at the time beside me said to me, "You were the hummingbird." <laughs> and it all happened like at once, it was like, Bush! and I was like, "Oh my god." So um, I started sort of really embracing it. And now, like when I'm doing ceremony, even now, like if there's really beautiful music, sweet music, like flute music or a nice guitar music, she comes and my legs start going and I just start sailing off someplace. And everywhere I go that's been deep, whether it's uh, really wonderfully, blissfully heavenly, or I don't go to hell like as much as I used to back in the day. Been there, done that, lost the T-shirt. You know, that doesn't happen as much. But no matter where I go, Pico Flora is with me. And in in the lore of the jungle, so to speak, when you drink ayahuasca, you are tuning into a particular energy, just like you tune into a radio. If, if all three of us now tuned into the same radio station, we'd all hear the same song. Uh -huh. <laughs> we could be all different places, but we're right. in the same, you know, we're dialed into the same frequency. So in the lore of the jungle, when you drink the ayahuasca, you turn into a frequency where you'll also find plant and animal spirits and other things that are not necessarily human, but they're energies that show signs of intelligence. So in that mythology, lore of the jungle, whatever you like to call it, not only are you seeing through the animal's eyes, but it's seeing through yours, and you are sharing that frequency. You're sharing that vibe. So you're learning from each other and your allies. And I realized that everything doing in my life now has, it has for most of my life, but I wasn't aware of it, but even more so now has that wonderful hummingbird energy. Mm. Um, 
there's a million things about him. I'm going to be writing a book about this, but there's a million things about hummingbirds. Among one of the most amazing is that, among all, all the gazillion of things that are amazing about them, right. is that in proportion to their body, their heart is the biggest heart of any animal in, in the in the world or the animal kingdom in proportion really? to their body. Yeah, they have the biggest heart. And their wings move in a figure eight, um, which is another whole magical thing. And of course, Infinity. you know, they can move up. Yeah, exactly. And I have a book about that, Infinity Zone, that talks about that. But um, it's wonderfully amazing, high level, high frequency, beautiful energy. It's heart centered. And f for me, anybody who stays on the path with the plant medicines, particularly ayahuasca, if you continue on the path and go through all the, the ordeals and the trials and the tribulations, you actually move from being head-centered to heart-centered. And you're becoming more from your heart, which I also find amazing. Mm. Um, somebody else told me some years back that hummingbirds are the nerve endings of God. I just love that. <laughs> and, um, you know, this Aztec and Maya mythologies and Inca mythologies all around uh, the hummingbird. It's really, it's really arguably the most magical animal that there is. You know, they would even believe that it would appear and disappear from the other dimension because it was so quick and the brightness of the right. Uh, you know, the reflection, the colors on the feathers and all that. So people in shamanic work, people in the jungle and stuff like that, they know me as Picoflor. And I know the people who have been working the longest with the plant medicines, and they all, they all have their own animals. A lot of them have jaguars. Uh, some of them have weird things like turtles and, and, and dolphins. So I wanted to ask you about that, too. So, I mean, we've I've done a ton of psychedelics. I've never been to the uh, Amazon or South America to do an ayahuasca ceremony. Uh, but, uh, you know, from talking with enough people on this podcast and doing research, it seems like there's a lot of animal archetype stuff associated with that experience specifically as opposed to other um, psychedelics. Uh, what do you think that is? Do you think it's because of you know, uh, dimethyltryptamines, this thing that's incorporated into uh, most living things, and that's just this common connective thing? Or do you think it has to do with the fact that you're in that setting, therefore it's almost like uh, your mind's more malleable to that? Or like, what do you think's going on with those animal archetypes? So the primary answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll elaborate on that just a little. Yeah. So uh, in shamanic thought, and perception, and shamanism is all about perception, um, among other things. And in that uh, mode of thought, absolutely everything is energy. You are perceiving an energetic reality. So you can take the word spirit, and you can take the word energy, and they're completely interchangeable. If I suddenly got mad and went out and started beating up people, some would say I was possessed by the spirit of anger. If I went out and just started loving everybody and giving out free hugs, you might say I was possessed by this, uh, the spirit of love. Or if I was just hugging beautiful babes, you could say I was possessed by the spirit of lust. Yeah. But, you know, the point is it's the quality of the energy. And one of the things I've learned about paying attention to myself with my inner mindfulness um, and awareness, because it's all about expanding awareness, is the quality of the energy. How does it make me feel? So the the most beautiful, best, expansive energy that I've felt has come, for me personally, from, from the hummingbird. There's a classic thing that I learned in, from one of my shamanic teachers, and, and it says that there are, 
as Frank Zappa used to say, if anybody's ever listened to Frank Zappa. I love Frank Zappa. Love yeah, the, the crux of the biscuit, uh, as Frank would say, <laughs> you know. That's real strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have a whole weird history with Frank Zappa. I won't get into it later, maybe, but. Um, <laughs> Save it for the Patreon. But, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so the um, the thing is this basic thing. Fear is contraction and love is expansion. Period. End of story. That's the crux of the biscuit. There are levels of it. If, if anybody's familiar with uh, Stan Stan Groff's perinatal matrices, that gets deep into that. Yeah, but it's that documentary, The Way of the Psychonaut, that just came out. Not that yeah, long ago. yeah. And I've and I've been reading his stuff for years. I got to hear him speak some years back uh, with my very good friend Jim Fadiman. Um, so fear is contraction, love is expansion, and in shamanic thought, you can recognize evil. But there's really no such thing as evil, so to speak. It has to do with levels of awareness and lack of awareness. Anybody who's being really evil is being really evil because they're fear-based and they don't know any better. You know, you're if you're conditioned to be a particular way, I mean, and not that I was evil, but I was younger and I grew up in a tough neighborhood and I got in a lot of street fights and this and that and a lot of trouble. It was the energy I was cultivating, even, even subconsciously. And even when I didn't want to do it anymore for a number of years, I was drawing it to myself subconsciously because it was there in my shadow. But when you understand that fear is contraction and love is expansion and you work toward expanding yourself and you think about taking different plants and animals uh, and experiencing their energies, you know, they call ayahuasca the mother of all the plants. And there's there's an expression. So, you know, when you're doing ceremony with ayahuasca, um, you're singing to the plants. Stephen Byer wrote a great book called Singing to the Plants. And you're singing to the plants, and you're like, man, you have the most beautiful babe in the world, and I love you, and I adore you, and I'm just telling you that I'm here loving you and adoring you and kissing your butt, right? And in the tradition, they call it uh, whistling through the forest. And what you do is you're going into the jungle, and you're saying, look, I am in your, I'm on your turf. I'm in your neighborhood. I'm in your territory, and I want you to know that I recognize that, and I honor that, and I respect that. And I want you to know that I realize you have the ability to heal me, or you can kill me. And I'm telling you I'm recognizing you, and I'm asking you for help, and I'm honoring you and with respect. So then you're opening yourself up, and when you're showing the right respect, and you're doing the ordeals that go with the plant dieta, then they come to you and all of the discomfort and things that you go through. What they say is that all of the ordeals that you go through or what you must do to prove that you're worthy of the knowledge and the gifts that the plants have to give you. So all of these spirits and all of these animals are actually different energies. And when you go into an ayahuasca journey, in, in my opinion, uh, you're tuning your mind into that frequency. Uh, Terrence McKenna used to talk about this a lot. And you go in that place where you're aware and open, and then these different energies come to you. And, of course, whatever kind of energy you have within yourself, you can draw those energies to you. Hmm. So all of the, you know, the darkness that I've had in myself is because I, it was there and it drew those energies. And, of course, ayahuasca has a wonderful ability to amplify your fears and put your face in it, hmm. which helps you to resolve it, all your shadow aspects. So when you start to face them and don't deny them and recognize them, you start to integrate them back into yourself and you become more and more aware. You're not, you know, 
you're not discriminating. You're not under any particular religious thing like, you know, if I do this, Jesus will never accept me or, you know, I'm this religion, so my God's better than yours. None of that applies. Right. You're really open. The other thing I had pointed out to me from a lady friend, which I thought was great, is that male's primary fear is fear of entrapment and women's primary fear is fear of abandonment. So there's that whole thing. And, you know, males, we, you know, traditionally prehistoric, whatever, we got to go out and hunt and bring down the mastodon or whatever we're going to have for dinner. We have to be quiet and focused and out there and uh, in a male thing. We don't want to be trapped anywhere. We want to be able to be free and go out and spread our seed and hunt and all that. Women, by the nature of their biology, they have to take care of the nest. They have to take care of the offspring. So it behooves them. They, they, they have the very real fear of abandonment. Uh, people who don't know would think, oh, the American Indians, you know, oh, well, they were weird because they'd have two or three wives. Well, they'd have two or three wives because another warrior would, would die and those women would have nobody to take care of. So as an honorable thing, the, the living warriors who are strong and powerful could take those women as a squaw to take care of them and take care of their children and feed them and support them and protect them. So there's a biological imperative in keeping the nest. It also behooves women to gossip, like a lot of times they, they gossip, because they need to know what's going on around the periphery of where they're living with all their other lady counterparts, you know, as a survival mechanism. So they do have a fear, a very real fear of abandonment. And it happens all the time with, with kids and illegitimate kids and pregnancies and all that. Well, as I say, I've dated a couple people that have had uh, been adopted, and I know that that's a massive issue with people that are adopted i'm not saying everybody but people yeah that are, you know the abandonment thing um in terms of uh um when you look at we were just discussing like the archetypes and different things um do you think that there's a difference uh between taking ayahuasca in south america and let's say some sort of Middle Eastern analog in terms of like um, possibly ancient times? Like, do you think that maybe the psychedelic experiences in different regions bring on different archetypes and that's why you see the differences in religions and mystery traditions and things like that? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that fascinates me about ayahuasca in particular, I'll start from there and kind of branch out, is that there are archetypes and you will see jaguars and snakes and condors, whether you're in the jungle or whether you're in New York City. It doesn't matter. But when you continue to delve into your subconscious and you spend time working through your personal things and all that, you start tapping into the collective. You know, uh, I was telling uh, somebody on a show the other day that, you know, for me personally, and, 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 and Mike, you might be as old as me from what you were telling me about cassette tapes there, brother, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I grew up with the atomic bomb. I'm in my mid 30s. If anybody. Oh, cares. you're still a youngster. Uh, you're. You, you can be the resident. <laughs> you can be the resident fetus. I'll be the resident geezer. How's that? Like, I love uh, that band name right there. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> so, well, my buddy was talking about. We were talking about our cell phones. We're going to start a band called Potential Spam. Um, nice. Yeah, it's a whole other thing. But um, I'm sorry, I got off track there. <laughs> But the, 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 one of the things that fascinated me about ayahuasca and DMT in particular is the agreed-upon psychological landscape 
Like anybody who's, you know, Terrence used to talk about the self-transforming machine elves. Um, anybody who's spent extended DMT time knows about the crystal castles. Mm. They know about this agreed upon psychological landscape. So I had a wonderful experience many years back, um, my second year in the jungle. And I was seeing all these beings that came to me and they were doing things with me and I was interacting with them. And they were like fairy beings and light beings. It was like it was like being in the middle of a really wonderful psychedelic Disney movie. And they were really being kind to me. And I was blown away by by how different they were and, and you know, the energy of them. So I came out of the jungle and we went and visited Pablo Amaringo. Are you guys familiar with Pablo Amaringo's work? Uh, the artist? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Pablo was a friend of mine. Uh, he's passed away seven or eight years ago. His, I'm still a, a good friend of his son's. And I've act, I was actually doing tours across country for a couple of years with a lot of his students doing a visionary art tour with the ayahuasca-inspired uh, paintings. So I, I had those wonderful experiences with those beings, and I came out of the jungle, and I had, I had met Pablo once before, so when I went to visit him again, I knew him, but, we, you know, we weren't like best buddies or nothing, but I mean, I knew him. Right. And, he, and he, so we, there was a group of us, and he said, I want to show you my latest painting, what I'm working on right now. And damned if I looked at that painting, and there were a lot of the beings that I saw. Mm. And I looked at him, and I pointed, and I went, oh, you know, I said something about, you know, like NRT, and he looked at me, and our eyes met, and there was like this electric moment where he understood that I saw what he was painting. And for me, that validation of Pablo Amaringo's visions that were being painted that, that, that matched the visions I had right. just totally blew my mind. So there's an agreed upon thing. But when you get into different cultures, you are going to have different archetypes. Yeah, um, I was just curious, too, because also, like, let's say the Middle Eastern a analog would be acacia, you know, with some sort of like, let's say, Paganum Harmala or yeah. something like that. And then obviously in South America, you have the... Uh, you know, the normal brew, which was the Banisteriopsis and, yeah. uh, you Psychotria. know. Yeah, so, I mean, I, that's why I was just curious if maybe the different plants have different archetypes built within them for the experience. I, I think it's more within us. Okay, um, well, that you makes know, one sense. Of my thing, yeah, I mean, like, like, so one of the reasons I wrote my historical novel, Land Without Evil, is first contact between the Jesuits and the Indians in South America, but it was told from the Indians' point of view. So if somebody's going to tell me that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell, and then you go to some remote jungle tribe who's never heard of Jesus, I don't believe that the universe is going to send those people to hell because they don't know Jesus because they never met the guy or never had any contact with him. They have their own pantheon um, of beings and energies. And, uh, you know... That's you know, a when, game changer, though, right? I mean, I was raised Catholic, and at some point... Um, at some point I realized like, how is this the right way compared to all these, like what you're saying, all these other people that have all these different beliefs. And that was like the, the, the turning point for me. Not that uh, I don't believe that there's something more. I just don't believe in the official script of this is how it is. And that's been that way since, you know, the ancient times. And I mean, there are things that I take, you know, ancient knowledge wise, and there's things you can look at like, philosophy and ancient Greece and the beginning of philosophy and how that evolved yeah. from, you know, Plato to 
uh, Neoplatonism all the way to Christianity, and there's an evolution happening there. And obviously, a lot of it comes from like Plato's theory of forms, right? So mm-hmm. there's probably something to that, in my opinion. But this again, this official narrative that you know what you're saying, this this guy wrote this thing. You know, I think Paul started writing about Jesus 40 years after Jesus had already died. He didn't even know him, you know. So yeah, um, and a lot of yeah. stuff that we know, people don't even realize like the origin stories of them. So, yeah. and th- that's been a big thing we've tried to do on this podcast is just put information out there so people know. It's like, don't believe things word for word just to believe them. Like, do the research, read these things, look into them deeper, you know? Yeah. You, well, so you were Catholic. You have my sympathies. I was Catholic. <laughs> you bailed, so you're obviously highly intelligent. And didn't I just stick stopped around. going to church at, I think, yeah. in middle school age. And I just, you know, it wasn't, and if I, if I went, it was for my mom, you know, just to yeah. be respectful of tradition and everything like that but it was never something i was like connected to and actually we've talked about this too my first psilocybin experience uh in high school i think it was probably 15 years old or something like that um Mm -hmm. i realized this is something more this is what i've been searching for this is what people talk about in this other thing that i never experienced but this is real this is here um this is some sort of connection to something greater right yeah, there's two things I want to touch on that you've been, we we have been dancing around. Right. Um, one of them is that I know for me personally, I I have I was just telling some guy this morning on email I, I've got 50 years of psychedelic experience. I first got four-way acid in Boston from a from MIT, which we used to call Mental Institute for the Touched, from a chemist who went by my favorite Martian, and there were four-way hits. And I did my first journey. It took me about eight times doing one of those to be able to handle a whole one. And my first journey was in 1971. But an interesting thing, and I've done tons, tons of LSD. You name it, I got everything I can get my hands on, including, you know, hyperventilating, sniffing glue, you know, back in the day, you know, PCP, MDMA. I mean, I did everything I could find. Right. I really had a fun time with Sasha Shulgin's menu, you know, as I got a little older. Yeah, that was a fun story, not to cut you off, but last time you were on, you were discussing taking, uh, I forget what compound was it. It was one of his experimental compounds in um, Palenque. Yeah, yeah, 2CT7. We did a study that Casey Hardison was doing. Um, But so um, one of the things that happened to me after I did ayahuasca is that I would do mushrooms and I could go right into ayahuasca space. But... I wouldn't have known that doorway was there unless I had experienced it first. Mm. So that experience did it. But um, the other thing I want to talk about, and I did this uh, the other night, is uh, the difference between spirituality and religion. Mm. Now, just one more step back. All of the religions come from shamanism. Shamanism was the very beginning. The first time somebody looked up and looked up at the stars and said, what does it all mean and what am I and how did I get here and all of that. That's really the beginnings. And then every single religion in the world grew up out of that. And you can go into any religion, no matter what it is, even even Satanism and all that, and you can find truth. I mean, it's in there. So what happened um, as things evolved is, okay, religion is based on the words of prophets. So, you know, Uh, I'm going to use Jesus as an example just because it's a good reference point. This can go to Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. You know, Buddha uh, sat under the Bodhi tree. Muhammad went into the cave. Jesus went into the desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I like tweaking Christians a little bit sometimes, not not in a mean way, but I'm like, look at 
I guarantee you, if you go into the desert and you fast for 40 days and 40 nights, I guarantee you, you'll be talking to God too. Hmm. So what happened, and Paul was a really good example in terms of the Bible. Jesus, Jesus had his revelations and his experiences, right? And then what happened? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote about it. So here's four people now putting their own spin on what Jesus experienced in his revelations and, and inspirations and, you know, uh, whatever you like to call them. And then, of course, somebody took that and translated it, and somebody else translated that, and then King James went in there and did his thing on it, and then somebody else did something. Well, by the time yeah, we get Council it— Council of Nicaea, all that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff, right? And they, and they were picking old stories from other stuff. Right, and they left know? stuff, other stuff out, too, that seemed— yeah, Enoch— well, I mean, yeah. they, they left things out that would show that maybe Jesus was more of a... I mean, look, there's different... The Gospel of Thomas makes him look like he's a supernatural being, and then there's other ones that make him seem like he's like, like a normal, like you said, like a normal enlightened being that's just like a normal guy that just knows a lot more, is more compassionate, more loving, lives a, a better style of life than more people, probably ahead of his time in that regard. Yeah, so then then some of the, and I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but people who follow hardcore religion follow scripture. So they're following the writings that was written by somebody who's writing about an experience that somebody else had, okay? Shamans say the hell with all that. You go into the cave and meditate. You go into the desert and fast for 40 days and 40 nights. You have your own experience. Shamanism is based on direct experience. So then when you start to qualify and understand the different energies, whether, whether they're a hummingbird or a plant energy or whether it's heavenly or hellish or the, the, the nature of the energy, to me now is all come down to what I like to define as the cosmic masculine and the cosmic feminine. So in indigenous cultures, if the Christians come in and say, you know, if you take those plants and those medicines, we're going to eviscerate you or hang you or burn you at the stake, you must accept Jesus. Well, they would take their idea of the cosmic masculine and say, "Okay, we'll call him Jesus if you want to. We'll, we'll call him Jesus if you want to call him that." But for them, the, the essence of that male dynamic is not any different. So there are the names and yeah. scriptures and all that, but there's direct what experience. About, what about so? But what about the integration? So, like, you have obviously the terrible things that the conquistadors and Colombians did, and. Uh, basically forcing people like out of these their normal traditions and then now you look at some psychedelic traditions whether you're watching like hamilton's pharmacopoeia and he's doing san pedro and they're talking about saint peter and catholicism and all these catholic archetypes that have been kind of woven in um is do you see like a lot of that still is that still uh like remnants of that that terrible period in time or like, do people really embrace that now as like, um, or is it just one of those things where over time it became more widely accepted? Yeah, uh, it's a little bit of everything. Like, if you look at, um, for example, uh, Santo Daime, uh, Ayahuasca Church, it's what's, those, are, those are called syncretic religions. And they will take um, Christian elements and incorporate them into their practices. Uh, voodoo is a syncretic religion of Christianity and African uh, animistic uh, beliefs. So a lot of the, the beliefs um, have evolved over time, and then they'll take those symbolic elements and and uh, add them and and make them a big part of it. You know, so like in my case, picoflora is my totem. In shamanism, 
all of the plants and the animals and the primary elemental spirits. They're all elemental spirits. Primary elemental spirits, earth, air, fire, and water. If, if you're in Chinese medicine, they include metal. They say there's five, but there are primary elemental spirits. In shamanism, when you recognize and acknowledge those spirits, they like that. And you'll have the, if you really keep at it and you're as crazy as I am or crazier or, or approaching craziness, <laughs> uh, you know, you, uh, you start to see those things and then any symbol that you have can honor that. So, you know, in, in like um, Asian religions, they'll have a whole temple to their ancestors, right? And they'll have pictures and they'll have candles and articles of clothing or jewelry. They're honoring their ancestors by those energies that are represented by those symbols. Hmm. So if I grew up in a church, for lack of better words, a church organized religion dominated environment, and I had my vision, and maybe even I drank ayahuasca and I've been taught Jesus all my life, and maybe Jesus will come to me in a vision as a face of the uh, cosmic masculine. That's the one I'm going to recognize the most, and if that's going to be the one that has the most impact, that's the one that could come to me. So the point I'm making is when you have primary energetic influences that are very important to you in your spiritual practice, you're going to get symbols and pictures. If you be in my room where I'm where I am at and I'm living, there's hummingbirds everywhere. I even have a hummingbird that somebody gifted me with that that had died, and they preserved it. That's there, and um, a lot of the places where I have been in my shamanic journeys, they say that a shaman's altar is the center of his universe. So a lot of the sacred places I've been, I'll take a little stone, I'll ask permission, so to speak, in the tradition, or, and I'll and I'll put them on my altar. So I can look at my altar and see an object or a thing or a picture or whatever it is, right, and um, look at it. And they consider that to be sort of a portal to that place. I can call up those memories and those feelings about it. I have a really wonderful big, um, it's a big cross-section of ayahuasca vine that I got from Kat Harrison. Uh, you know, she was Terrence McKenna's wife, an entheobotanist, yeah. years ago. Well, there's that plant as a pendant. I wear that in ceremony. I'm honoring the spirit of the ayahuasca. And hey, look, it's almost like, you know, there's a joke about in the old war movies. If you watch the old war movies, then the guy who shows you the picture of his girlfriend, you know he's going to get it. Uh, it's the same thing as the red shirts on Star Trek, right? Oh, yeah. there's a guy with a red shirt. He's out of here, right? Especially if he has a girlfriend, right? Well, those things that remind you of those energies are, are, are part of the symbolism. So no matter what culture you're in, if you've had a divine experience with one of those energies, you want pictures of it. Jesus could very well come to me in my visions. Um, and I'm say, hey, dude, what's up, man? You know, and if it really gave me a profound uh, experience, I could see getting a statue of Jesus. I know some of the uh, guys in the jungle, the vegetalistas, who have a couple of saints who have a connection through, like, that's the saint their father believed in and their father died. They've got that saint. So, you know, they have power like that that we, that we can give them. Those are still just symbols, though, right, too? So if you start looking at, like, Carl Jung's stuff or even, like, the UFO stuff, like Jacques Filet or the UAP stuff, and they're talking about how these things represent something else. So these energies that come to you, whether it be via psychedelics, meditation, sleep paralysis, lucid dreams, whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, they, they take on the illusion of whatever you've been into or studying or 
interested in. So let's say like you, like you just said, you're big into the Jesus archetype, not you, but I'm just saying in general, some yeah. were into that. Um, and they've been studying that their whole life. That's how this energy would be presented to them. Or if somebody studied gray aliens their whole life, that's how that would be presented to them or so on and so forth. Um, do you believe in that? Like there is this one thing that just takes on different forms or symbols that try to communicate or at least give us some sort of, you know, uh, inkling of what's going on. Yeah. So uh, I always like to say this. I probably said it to you a bunch of times before, but yeah, everything, that, that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everything that I say is true in my universe, right? It's my universe. Doesn't have to be true in anybody else's. They can listen. They can give it some value based on my experience. But I'm not forcing it on anybody's throats. To me, I look at it and, and with all my writing and my music and all of that is an offering. And they can take it or they can leave it. But this is the reality that I am. So if we're all the creators of uh, our realities, which is what I believe, the center of the universe is right between your eyes, but home is where the heart is, which is another one of my books. And we're, we're putting that together. And if my whole life, my, uh, in fact, in my case, my mother prayed to a saint, Santa Teresa de Avila, who was a devout follower of Jesus. And I discovered that my mother was praying to Santa Teresa while I was in the jungle. And, and she came to me in my visions. I mean, I was ready to get swallowed by jaguars and let's go. Let's get Peg in here, man. Let's get down. You know, I'm, I'm ready. Right. And here comes this beautifully wonderful vision of Santa Teresa. And then I came out of the jungle and I was talking to my mom, you know, because she used to worry like, oh, my God. You know, she said to me the first time, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You mean to tell me you're going to go into the middle of the jungle and hallucinate? <laughs> and I was like, well, well yeah, Ma, that's what I'm going to do. Every mother's dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. She's like, oh, my God. That's my and boy. Then, yeah, yeah, that's my boy. <laughs> so she, uh, I was on a radio show with a friend. This was back before, two, this was like in 98. And he recorded it. And I sent her the tape, and she heard me, and she realized, oh, okay, you're not just going to, to trip balls in the jungle. You did your research, and you know what you're talking about. I'm still worried that the Shining Path might kidnap you and take you and decapitate you, but at least I know you're not just going into the jungle to hallucinate. There's something behind it, and it, so it, it, it chilled her out about those things, you know? Mm. But, but I came out, and I said, Ma, I said, and I'm spoiling the end of Spirit Matters, by the way, but I said, Ma, uh, you're probably going to think I'm, I'm really lost. When, when I first had this Santa Teresa vision, I didn't know who she was. I was asking people, will you ever hear this Santa? It came out of nowhere between my dreams and my visions and lucid dreams and visions. They played into each other. And I actually was in rapture with Santa Teresa in my visions after being introduced in my more than lucid dreams. So I was like, Ma, you're really going to think I lost it here, man. <laughs> but I had this vision of this. I never heard Santa Teresa. And she got really quiet, right? This is on the phone from, from the jungle, from Peru, from, from Pucallpa, the jungle town, you know? And I'm, I'm like, Ma, you know, you okay? I, I mean, I'm okay. You know, you don't have to worry. She, she says, I've never said this to anybody before in my whole life. But you know, your grandmother was hardcore Catholic. And when we were kids, she assigned your aunt, St. Joan, and she assigned me Santa Teresa. And she said, you know, I never bought into fully into that Catholic stuff and all that, anything. But whenever I've prayed, I have prayed to Santa Teresa. Mm -hmm. Well, that blew my mind. That changed my whole life because here's validation. I didn't even know who Santa Teresa was, and, and no right. doubt my mom was praying to her. And then she came to me in these visions. 
So as time has elapsed, I've realized that, yeah, it was Santa Teresa, and yeah, she was a devout follower of Jesus, but she really was was just another face of the cosmic feminine. Hmm. How, how is the cosmic feminine, if I'm the cosmic, whatever I am, let's just say cosmic feminine or cosmic masculine, I'm a cosmic masculine and I want to present myself to you and all my power and my glory and my connection to spirit, what am I going to do? I'm going to look at something that you're familiar with. If, if you were raised that Jesus is the Savior all your life for, for 30 or 40 years of your life, I'm going to pick that form to come to you because that's the one you're going to recognize the most. Right. You know, because in the end, uh, spirit doesn't have any form. Right, spirit is formless. So if it's going to manifest in my mind, in my being, in any way, it's going to pick something that I know and I can relate to. Just almost like to make sure you know that I got the message, so to speak. Right. So that you know that symbolism goes across. It it grows across collective culturally. I'm not going to have the same visions of somebody who's you know uh, uh, a Hindu or a Buddhist or you know uh, Judaism or any of those things. You know. with you know uh, Muhammad or any of them, yeah. those are the things that are going to come because that's what comes from the collective because that's been the my the basis of my experience in this world. We got a couple comments. Shout out to Stan- Sandy. She says Land Without Evil and Zeptepi were part of her DMT visions, and she painted a picture. Actually, you've seen the picture. It's it's an amazing painting, and she's never apparently painted anything before, which I thought was crazy. Um, and she said, uh, "If you see this, Matt, thank you." So I know she loves your work. So shout out to Sandy. Also, Paolo says this resonates with me so much. So, I mean, you know, I think that these conversations are important too, to talk about these things. Cause, um, I think that when you look at this topic, whether, you know, it's a little out there for most people, right? Like your average person's going to yeah. listen to this and be like, what's going on, you know, but for somebody that's experienced, you know, psychedelic experiences, transformational psychedelic experiences, lucid dreaming, or, you know, really starts to try to understand the mind. I think you start to look at these things like these archetypes and these energies and you say, what's going on? Like something's happening and it's real, but it's very bizarre. There's no real way to kind of calculate or really put into words, you know, in like a scientific manner, what's happening. That That's a good point. Uh, I don't know if you can see me, but I'm bowing to Sandy. Blessings times, <laughs> blessings times a gazillion to you, Sandy. And what was the other one was Paul. Thank you so much hey, for Paolo. indulging me. Paolo, thank you for listening and indulging me. There's that. But here's an interesting thing. I've been writing for close to 40 years. I've been teaching for over 30 at major writers' conferences. I was blessed to be mentored by Ray Bradbury and Charles Schultz and a number of other really known writers. They, they took me in. I was the youngest workshop leader for 15 years. And they took me in, and at the time, I'm like, what are you guys even paying attention to me for? You know, don't you know how nuts I really am? I mean, I'm, I'm a juvenile delinquent. You get, why do you even care? And they really took me in. And as the years have gone by, I've been more and more appreciative of that. And what a wonderful blessing it was to be part of that brotherhood. Uh, on a little side note, the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, Ray Bradbury kicked it off for 37 years. And next year is going to be our 50th year. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it's family. But but here's the thing. My workshop originally started off as horror, fantasy, and science fiction. Then right around 2000 with the Y2K and all that stuff that was going on, I was seeing more spiritual new age stuff. So I changed it in my workshop. Now it's called Fantastic Fiction with a PH. Oh, and it's literary. <laughs> Pardon me? Nothing. I like that. Oh, bless you. Thank you. 
So liter literature of the visionary, supernatural, metaphysical, horror, fantasy, and science fiction. Um, maybe I missed something. But I mean, I could, you know, with my writing skills that I've learned, I could even critique romances and all those other things that I, that I don't have anything to do with. But my struggle all along has been to take a visionary experience, which by its very nature is non-rational. It's not logical. Uh, often appear to be jumbled. It's a completely different non-logical, sophisticated language of the subconscious that ties in with intuition and other things. To take those experiences that are beyond words and to try to find words to put them in such a way that a reader can live vicariously through me and get a sense of those experiences through through my experiences. So, you know, people used to say to me all the time, well, thank you. Thank you for going to the jungle for us, and thank you for going to the jungle for me. And I used to think, well, you know, what do you mean by that? And then I realized that I went, not everybody gets to go to the jungle like I did. Not everybody gets to have the experiences I had. And my job is to try to take those experiences, which are ultimately ineffable, which is one of my favorite words, hmm. and, and, and put them in a way that people can get a sense of living vicariously through me with those experiences. So the thing I'm always telling my writing students all the time, the job of a writer, especially in fiction, but anything else, is to put your reader there. So what I discovered through all of this is that the key to those experiences in a way that people can have some access in relation to them is through metaphors. Hmm. And as just as a reminder, you know, a metaphor is one thing that everybody can relate to that relates to something else. So if I say that, that that place was black as coal, everybody can see the image, conceptual image of coal in that blackness, and they'll also know exactly what black I'm talking about because I gave you a good metaphor for that. So the key is yeah, using Yeah, I like, uh, um, not to change sub, but like uh, no, Tom, Tom Wolfe's electric Kool-Aid acid test. Like you feel like you're there experiencing these acid tests in the late 60s and you're you're hanging out with the dead and you're meeting all these you know Dean uh, uh, Morarty or uh, uh, Neil Cassidy you know you're yeah. you're meeting all these like crazy characters and like he sets the setting and the vibe and you just feel like you're in it and we actually read that in like high school that's what kind of got us into this whole wow uh, yeah he thing. said he didn't take drugs either and if he didn't then he does a damn good job of putting you in that that mindset because that's like the first. I've not, I didn't take acid until um, I was in like my early 30s, and reading that book, I felt like I had somewhat of a grasp of what was going on. Obviously, you never know until you do it, but that's the kind of writing that can transport you into a whole new mindset. That That's a testament to a very skilled and wonderfully crafted writer. Yeah. And, and that and is... I, I, what I was going to say is... I kind of get that vibe from your books too, like the descriptive detail. And like you said, like putting your, putting yourself there or like, a, a, like the writer writing the descriptive detail. So you feel like you're in that realm or that dimension or whatever. Yeah, it's exactly right. Which is one of the reasons why initially for this book, Picaflor, it was important for me to record it raw when I was there, you know, coming out of a, tripping balls experience where I've been gone and, you know, multiple dimensions and beings and whatever, and then try to capture that. And of course, because the experience, the ayahuasca experience, and even dreaming is a non-linear linear experience. Right. And so when you communicate, like we're all talking right now, 
I'm giving you guys one word at a time, and you're doing the same thing with me. We're giving each other one word at a time. We're stringing them into a sentence in order to make a point in a logical order, in order to for us to communicate. But visions are not linear. They're not orderly. The imagery is not orderly. When you when you wake up and you're trying to work with your dreams and remember your dreams, the first thing you remember is the most recent event in the dream. And then you have to remember backwards to try to unpack it all. So there's a, and I, and I get into this quite a bit in Picoflor. I get into a lot of the science and stuff like that um, in, in terms of the fact that how different the right and the left brains are and the intuition as opposed to logic and the masculine and the feminine and how they work together. And one of the things of being a writer is learning how to work with your subconscious. So you got to feed it mm. and then you got to leave it alone for a while and then it'll bring stuff up. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come up to me and say to me, oh, man, the way you did that in, in, in that one book, in that one story, and the way you tied all that together, that was really brilliant. And I'm like, oh, wow, thanks, man. And in my head, I'm like, I did that? Yeah. You know, that wasn't conscious on my part. That was the stuff that the subconscious brings to it. And all of this work, this shadow work, is delving into the subconscious to find out what's there. And once you get through the initial layers, then you start getting into the collective. And then you start getting into more and more, and of course your own energy gets improved because you're not you're 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 basically facing your demons that you have created, right? And accepting them and bringing them home. Yeah, um, and I I was thinking I was like the ego is not like growing mushroom mushrooms. You don't want to feed it shit and keep it in the dark. You know, you want <laughs> uh, you want to keep enlightening yourself and keep an open mind and. Uh, feed your ego good things like people keep talking about like ego death and dissolution that's all I mean yeah I've taken 10 grams of dried you know psilocybin I've pushed myself you know at like music festivals or fish shows and different things I push I put myself out there I push myself that that feeling that they're talking about is just you um losing all of your preconceived notions and uh, ideas of and patterns and things that you've built over the years of how you perceive the world. Um, and in reality, your ego could be a good thing if you feed it good things or if you treat it in a way that's, you know, um, in a balanced way, I guess is what I should say. But yeah, that whole, I'm, I'm not on board with the whole ego death. I think that's just something like people new to the community or new to the idea of it. That's what they say because they don't have the words to explain it in a different way. Pat yourself on the back, bro. You really are brilliant. I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass. Dude, you, I feel you like you are. <laughs> and it makes him feel good. <laughs> Keep he, he doing it. Like it. It'll yeah. tickle if you must. Here's the thing that I learned was taught to me and what I've experienced and how I perceive all of that, okay? Are you guys familiar with the work of Gurdjieff at all? Yeah, we talked about him pretty recently, actually. Uh, the uh, Fourth Way and... Uh, yeah, Uspensky yeah. wrote The Fourth Way. He was a protege of Uspensky. Right, right. Uh, he put, he, so, basically, Gurdjieff put people in like weird scenarios to see how their consciousness would react to that weird scenario. Yeah. And he, he was a seeker of truth. And this tied in with my shamanic studies and my teachers, which agreed. So Gurdjieff says, we come into the world as essence. And then the first thing we do is we emulate everybody around us. We emulate our parents. We've got brothers and sisters, the kid next door. We learn to cope by copying everybody, and we, we develop strategies. These strategies become energies or subpersonalities. 
and it's how we cope with the world. Now, that can work when we don't know any better when we're three, but it may not work when we're 30. It may not work anymore. You know, if you're if you're one years old and you throw a temper tantrum and you get mommy's boob and get your diaper changed, well, you know that works, but that's not going to work when you're 30. You're not going to get your way unless you're in some weird codependent relationship. I was going to say it could. It could get yeah, real right. weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so according to this whole thing, um, we develop our personalities or subpersonalities. I always love to say I'm a cast of thousands, okay? Um, we develop them. And then if there are different parts of ourselves that don't appear to be unacceptable, we stuff them and we deny them. We abandon them, just like the whole abandonment wound thing. Mm -hmm. And we bury them. And in extreme cases of PTSD and trauma, uh, you know, whether domestic violence or rape or uh, I've worked a bit with um, veterans, um, that whole trauma gets buried and your mind will actually block it out and you'll have no memory of it. Now, it can come back and you can get nightmares and this and that, but that's a creation, your own personal creation that you created or we created, whoever, and then we deny it. And, we, and, we, and of course, they're upset. You've abandoned me. And they're making more and more noise and they will create more and more problems until we turn around and embrace them. So one of the great things my coach told me back in the day is you don't kill your ego. You don't abandon your ego. It's your creation. You need to take it home and accept it and love it and embrace it. And it's and it's there in all of its cunningness and all the stuff that trips you up and we're all our own worst enemies because it's trying to protect you because that's what you set it up to do. So when you learn to embrace what you created, when you learn to love your creation and you accept it and embrace it and bring it back into yourself, that is a process you guys are probably no doubt familiar with. That's a process what Jung called individuation. Mm hmm and all the energy that you were using to suppress all that psychic disturbed energy, when you resolve it and you come to terms and you face it, which ayahuasca makes you do, and there are other processes, you don't necessarily need plant medicines to do it. When you embrace that part of it and come back, then that energy that you were using becomes available to you. And something that used to really make you upset and everything loses its charge because if somebody was doing something that used to upset you and you suddenly realize it, and grasp it, then you shift from being uh, judgmental to compassionate. And you understand, oh God, that's just how I was, or, you know, and I had years of that. And the whole idea is to become uh, more and more whole and more and more complete. In shamanic thought, and you guys will appreciate this because I know you guys got the history thing going on and all that. In ancient Egypt, uh, or Egypt itself, there's uh, the Temple of Anthropocosmic Man at Luxor. Yeah. Temple of oh, Man. Yeah. It is a, you guys know this, I'm saying this more for your audience. Um, it's a precise mathematical map of the human body. Every arch, every every hieroglyph, every artwork, every, every room, every wall, every angle is all a precise map, mathematical map of the human body. You know, going all the way back to the golden mean and, and all the stuff and the, and the, you know, the Fibonacci and all that comes, it's that precise map. In that temple and in that mode of ancient ancient school of thought which is also a part of shamanism our heart is the center of our universe and they say the temple of anthrop anthropocosmic man that's a that's a tongue twister <laughs> but they they say it's a map of the human body and a map of the cosmos which uh, cosmos god i'm getting my words all mixed up here <laughs> the cosmos right 
and it's a holo- it proves that it, everything is holographic, which has been my belief and my experience. It's all holographic like that, and it's all contained. So the you know the whole is contained within the parts and all of that. But the heart at the center of our being is our sun, and our sun is connected to the sun that's at the center of our solar system, back to a bigger sun, to a bigger sun, to a bigger sun, all the way back to source. When you look at that, and you look at the fact that shamanism is all about mastering energy, and then you look at the sun. And the sun, if you look at the table of elements, the sun is composed of the two highest frequency elements that there are, mm-hmm. hydrogen and helium. The two highest vibrations that we know of in matter are interacting and giving off pure energy unconditionally. So there, there's a wonderful, I quote this a lot, and hope anybody heard me before doesn't get sick of it, but uh, Hafez was a... Uh, 14th century mystic, if I remember correct, Persian, has a wonderful little thing. He says, even after all this time, the sun never once says to the earth, you owe me. Mm -hmm. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. So there it is, unconditional love. Life as we know it on earth would not exist without it. In shamanic thought, it's, you know, it's father sky, pachatata, you know, Padre Grande, mm-hmm. and, and in shamanism, it's Pachamama, uh, Madre Tierra, it's the earth. And the interaction of those two is what makes reality and life, we know it, uh, exist. So that whole idea of unconditional giving love energy is the sun. So when we take all those different aspects that we have created and integrate them back into ourselves, then what we're doing is we're building our awareness and we're getting rid of what my old shamanic teacher, one of them would call, we're getting rid of energy leaks. And we're getting individuated, as Carl Jung would say, and becoming more whole and complete. And when we're more whole and complete, we're more present and we're more in the moment. If I walk down the street and there's some guy that looks threatening to me because I got mugged 10 years ago from a guy who looked like that, and I'm all freaking out because this guy's going to mug me based on what happened to me in the past, and I'm all worried about what's going to happen in the future because there's this guy that looks like that, and of course nothing happens. All of that psychic energy, my heart was probably pumping, my adrenaline was going, who knows what other neurochemicals were all getting fired up, all for nothing. Mm-hmm. And that is the opposite of being in the moment. So when you expand your awareness, you become more and more present and more and more in the moment, you see more things that you may have missed before through all your fears and misconceptions and your darkness. There, there's two wonderful books I want to mention. There's The Dark Side of the Light Chasers, uh, written by Debbie Ford, which is a shorter version of this whole concept. And then one of my mentors that I've done a lot of work with over the years, it's called Transforming Your Dragons, How to Turn Your Fear Patterns into Power. And it's Jose Stevens, PhD, and he gets very much into detail and helps you to put the face on those subpersonalities. So you can recognize them for who they are that you created, and you can accept your creations back to yourself and become more a man or a woman of power. This path of shamanism that I'm all talking about is called the power path. And it's how you begin your personal power and become more aware. And, and of course, awareness, expanded awareness is expanded perception. And that's the name of the game, is expanded perception, right? And expanded perception, if fear is contraction and love is expansion, then expanded perception and awareness is what's going to help you to embrace love more and more and be more open to those kind of energies. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, shout out to Four and a Half Fingers. She's, or they say, 
Uh, we need more healing. I like that name, Four and a Half Fingers. I don't know if they're a Jerry Garcia fan that sounds like that, but maybe mm. I'm wrong. Uh, and then Sandy says, blessings back. So, mm. um, <laughs> um, so look, I think that uh, you have a tremendous wealth of knowledge on these topics. Obviously, you've been doing this for a long time. You're also a writer, so I think you're able to verbalize and also put down on paper how you feel and try and recreate some of these experiences uh, in a way that people might understand them. So I think that that's a valuable tool as well. Um, and I think that, like I said, I think these conversations are necessary and we need more of them. And obviously we're happy to have you on and we'll have you on, you know, again sometime in the near future. Um, and, uh, everybody should go check out your book, Pika Floor, which I have the link down below. It's actually a link to all of his, uh, Matthew's books. So check those out. There's a ton of them. All of them are great. I think last time we had you on, you just published, um, uh, death, a love story. Um, yeah about kind of embracing the idea of death, you know, no matter kind of what happens. Right. So, um, it's going to happen. So, you, you know, you prepare for it, but, uh, um, but yeah. So, uh, is there anything else you want to say before we cut this out and maybe start it? We're going to do a Patreon here after we go, we, uh, end our live session. Yeah, no, I, I just really appreciate everybody listening. And, and I know you're sick of getting sunshine blowing up your ass, but you guys are both really bright. There you go. That's, that's my man. I like that. You're humble like me, brother. Morris has got to feed that ego. There you go. No, I, I appreciate having this platform to share. For me, it's very, very important that people go into these experiences with their eyes wide open. And there's a lot of sharks in the water. There's a lot of people who have what I call guru-itis. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they give somebody five MEO and then that person's adoring them and then they're up. Hi, I am your all powerful shaman. I have just opened the cosmos to you and I am the vehicle for your wonderful embrace. of yeah, There's obviously a lot of malpractice in that realm. Yeah. So for me, the experience and the mistakes that I've made and the dues that I have paid, there is some truth to the fact that you thank you for going into the into the jungle for me because I went through it all and I would like to thank that people will read my work and my experiences and go, okay, I'm not going there. I learned that lesson. I saw what he went through. And I do find that, like like with my nephew and some of the younger people I'm connected with, uh, a number of them, they can, they can pick up what I've done and then they can take it to the next level. Hmm. So they can avoid a lot of the side paths that I stumbled on and fell into and screwed myself up with, sidestepped that, okay, I know that's not right, and then take it to the next level. And maybe what took me 20 years to figure out, maybe they could figure out even just by reading a book. So it's just important. Eyes wide open, knowledge and power. And that's why I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing, getting it out to people. Uh, So thank you for that. Yeah, no, we appreciate it. And we keep saying, you know, like the truth isn't always sexy or fun. You know, it's sometimes it's hard work. And sometimes, I mean, I I get depressed sometimes, you know, because if you're looking at the full spectrum of things, um, Sometimes the truth is sobering and sometimes it's uh, yeah. not fantastical or metaphysical and um, you just have to kind of balance that out. I'm kind of feeling like a shift coming for myself, though. I feel like I've been stuck in this almost, you know, uh, reality uh, bubble lately where it's like I wanted to look at all the academic and what we know about actual reality and the possibilities and different things. And I feel myself kind of swinging back now, though, to more of the not necessarily spiritual per se, but just like this balance that's happening and I'm kind of shifting back. I feel it 
kind of lately. Um, and I think that there's something to be said for that. I think that, that, um, this idea that there's more to life is definitely, uh, it's definitely something that I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. We've talked about it before. People that are void of any sort of higher calling or belief in some sort of higher thing or bigger picture thing or something bigger than themselves are usually pretty depressing people. And I think you can get caught in that trap, right? I mean, it's easy to fall into the materialism and this, we're just day in and day out. This is just what it is. And it's depressing. So I definitely feel a shift happening and I hope that, uh, like I said, we'll keep, we'll get you back on in the future and, uh, everybody definitely check out Pika floor and, uh, yeah, maybe next time you, uh, come on, I'll be way more missed. I'll be back to mystical Mike. Mystical Mike. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, you know, you're always mystical Mike. And I just want to say really quickly that growth is not fun and growth is more often than not quite painful but the results are more and more worth it. And there are periods where you go through emptiness or questioning and this and that. And then you you break out of the paradigm that you're in and a whole new one comes. Yeah, I'm so, due for a shift. I'm hoping. Yeah, your, your intention is good, bro. My money's on you, man. All right, man. Well, we appreciate yeah. it. And like I said, anybody that's interested, we're about to start a Patreon. I'll probably upload it later today. Um, and there, we did one with you already in the past. So if anybody's interested in an interesting story about near death experience and five MEO, go check out our, our last Patreon that we did with Matthew because it's, it's a great story. So, uh, but again, shout out to uh, everybody that participated, Sandy and four and a half fingers and Paolo and Brian and, uh, yeah, anybody that joined, we appreciate it. And we love the, uh, the, um, comments. So keep those coming. And uh, one more time, again, if you are interested in Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. That's what we're about to do. Uh, if you want to join our Discord, we're on there. It's You can join for free. If you want to do a fan chat, it is $5 a month, but we're on there. We're probably going to do a fan chat next week where we interact with everybody, and those are always fun. So go check that out. And head on over to indrasweb.org. It is live. This is a social media platform we created uh, you know, to connect to open minds and, uh, it is live. Uh, however, we are working on getting it in the app store. So please sign up for that and, uh, start the conversation on there. And, uh, that's it. We love everybody. Stay safe out there and, uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.